Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start back what we have been studying through, more recently looking at some of the issues that we can have with anger. I want to refresh our memories by just beginning by reading Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 5 through 11, and again, remind ourselves of what we've been working through. Um, Even before we start, I do want to mention, um, we have just one more message after today that's related to some of these more negative things, but we're going to turn to a little more positive uh, aspects of of, um, putting on and putting off. But, um, you know, it's here, so we're going to deal with it, and hopefully then we'll also deal with it in our lives. So let's, let's uh, look together then at Colossians 3, starting in verse 5. Therefore, and again, that's because of what Christ has done for us, because we've set our minds on, on Christ and eternity. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. But now you must put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who was renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So as we consider kind of where we've been and where we're going, we began a new section of Paul's letter last week. We shifted to the more social part of things uh, we are to put off. We have uh, part of our lives, uh, parts of our character that are earthy. And those are the things that we need to get rid of. Um, We're to put those things off, as we mentioned, like a smelly old work shirt. It's kind of something we want to distance ourselves from. We put these things off because verse 10 tells us that we have put on the new man. That's what we are to be doing. So our, our previous study dealt with anger, wrath, and malice. And we described Anger as a strong feeling of frustration or an unsettled dissatisfaction in some way. And I realize that's kind of the technical term, but, you know, we get mad. At its core, anger is often fueled by selfishness. Wrath and malice are two general products of anger. Wrath is that reactionary explosive outburst of anger, and malice is more of that slow burn. I'll get even with that person or I'll get them when the opportunity comes along. If we can think of it this way, wrath is fireworks, malice is a crockpot, right? So that's kind of what we're dealing with. Now, we did make sure that we mentioned that not all anger is wrong, but righteous anger is the exception. There's nothing wrong with being upset over the same things that God gets angry with, injustice, cruelty, And mocking God are some of the things that we are right to be angry about. There are times when we get angry about some of the things that have been done to us, and it isn't sinful necessarily. But even appropriate anger doesn't spill out as wrath, that explosive reactionary type of anger, or malice. When we do that, we are sinning. 
So it cannot, righteous anger is not going to stay righteous if it leads to something like that. Two of the sins that we're dealing with today grow out of what we have studied about anger, wrath, and malice. So there's a little bit of a progression here. And as we get into our study today, we need to keep in mind that these outgrowths of anger are never appropriate. And we need to put them off to separate them from ourselves. And the first thing we're going to be looking at is defaming speech. We have the word blasphemy in the New King James. The word is accurate. It's an accurate usage of the word. But what Paul is communicating, or what we, what we might um, understand that to be, is, is uh, something a little bit different. That might throw us off a bit. We generally think of blasphemy as speaking in a disrespectful way about God, right? That's usually how we reserve it. The emphasis is on saying something about someone else. In other words, this is indirect communication. So blasphemy is what is said to other people about someone else that cuts them down or harms the character of that person. So you can see how that word fits. That's really what we're doing against God when we do that. We're, we're, we're speaking against his character. So this word here, talking about more of the social aspect of it, is when we speak against someone else. Gossip and slander are a couple of very good examples of defaming speech or what the New King James refers to as blasphemy. This is kind of like the malice version of negative speech, right? It's something that's done indirectly. It's something that's done behind the scenes. Defaming speech can cause a lot of personal harm to someone. Think about how you have been harmed by someone talking about you, and that's when you find out about it. Think about maybe how we have cut somebody else down to size when we have said some, some ill things about them. And by the way, I, 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 I want to help us understand, boy, we got some young people going to camp this week, and you guys are going to be in a little percolator called uh, a cabin. You ever have any personal problems in the cabin? Well, man, you can apply some of these things, right? Um, I just had a little illustration pop in my head, but I'm going to wait. Let's just remind me if I forget it. It's right in this section, okay? <laughs> Defaming speech can cause a lot of harm, but can also harm their character in many different ways. One unique thing about defaming speech is that what someone says can be true. We, we can say something against someone and have it be true, but it is used in an appropriate way and should not have been said at all, right? It's probably something that we should have taken care of with them, but instead we say it to somebody else. So even true things aren't necessarily right things to say. The very first sin that we see in the Bible is actually defaming speech. Satan said, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That was a half-truth. See, he, Satan, added a selfish motive to God's command. God knows you're going to be like him. He wants to keep something from you. Isn't that something? Obviously, that's not true, what he said. 
We can be very subtle when we say things to diminish others, or we can be very blatant and bold about it. But I want to give us a couple of Proverbs that kind of lay some things out here. We're going to look at Proverbs several times because it's just wonderful wisdom literature. He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. And this is a little bit more direct in Proverbs 10:18. Whoever hides hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. Now I'll go back to that illustration that I did not forget about. I was a youth pastor a number of years ago in a camp full of junior high guys. We had gone through the entire week, and I didn't know it, but there were two guys that were just having this slow burn, right? Maybe it was just one against the other. I don't know. But I, I didn't see it. And I, I'm a pretty good observer. But these guys apparently were just not happy with each other. So we are literally starting to grab our bedrolls and our suitcases and stuff to take them to the, the, the cart or whatever that's going to, you know, take them to where we need to go. We're leaving after this wonderful week of spiritual, you know, enlightenment, Right. Of, of getting closer to the Lord. I'm sitting on my bed, and right behind me, all of a sudden, I hear something. These guys are going at it. And we're talking full-blown fisticuffs. I like that, by the way. I don't like that. But anyway. So, they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're going at it. And so here I am. I turn around. I'm like, what in the world? So I've got to pull these guys apart. And, and I'll admit, and I think it was righteous anger, I said, are you telling me are you telling me that we just went through a whole week and now you guys are going to beat the snot out of each other? Right? We went through a whole week of Bible camp? This is, this is how you respond? So it just it was crazy. So what's the point? It can even happen at camp. All right? But it can happen at work. It can happen in our home. It can happen with neighbors. And so we've got to be careful of this defaming speech and of this idea that I'll, I'll get him in this way, right? Amen. Then we go to demeaning speech. Again, in our scriptures there, right with the list that we see, our translation reads filthy language. We have yet another term that is accurate, but we may think filthy language is using inappropriate words or profanity. Could be the case, but that again is not the emphasis here. It's more of a social, people oriented thing. The specific meaning here is actually abusive language. And so you can understand where, you know, something profane, something ab abusive. So, filthy language in this context is any way we use nasty language to cut someone else down with our words. The emphasis here is the speech that is directed at someone, at a person. And we can parallel this filthy language with wrath, right? So again, we go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 18. There is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword. Ever been the recipient of that? But I like it. There's a, there's a positive here. That's the way Proverbs does a lot. But the tongue of the wise promotes health. So if we can contrast this, it's actually a foolish person who hurts other people with their words. 
These are hurtful things that we say when we explode, when we lose control, or maybe when we're under a decent amount of control, but we're just really mad. It's when we say cruel and terrible things about their looks, their character, their abilities, their intelligence, and so on. Maybe it's a coworker. How could you have been so stupid to have done that? Right? Anything we can say to either tear down or inflict pain or punish someone in some way. Parents and adults, this is where we have to be especially careful when we're dealing with young people. We can hurt anyone very badly when we put them down or when we're abusive to them. But our anger used as a weapon of words can wound a young person deeply and wound them long term. We've really got to be on guard about that. The next thing that Paul deals with is dishonest speech. Let's just kind of say, okay, what, what is a lie, right? So we're going to tell the truth about lying. <laughs> we can simply say something false or misrepresent the truth. We can add things to the truth to make it a lie. Or we can take things away from the truth or leave something out to make a statement that we make false. I want us to be careful. There are times when sometimes we use discretion as to how much information we might give. If we are not changing the truth, we're, we're using discretion. We're trying to be careful of things. If, you know, either that or just don't answer. But sometimes, like, well, you lied. You know, you didn't give me all of the facts. We, we're not always obligated in every uh, in, I'm trying to say two things at once. And in every situation, to give all the facts. That's not what it's saying here. What it's saying is we, we don't make dishonest statements. Paul adds a short, specific comment about lying. This may have been a particular problem in Colossae, right? Because he says, you guys need to stop doing this. So it may have been a particular problem in this specific church possibly carried over into the church from the culture around them or maybe paul wanted to simply emphasize something that could be very destructive right if if we lose trust in one another that is a problem and so paul was emphasizing that now lying is kind of the the odd one out here these are now talking about more verbal things right but it's similar to how Paul used covetousness back with the previous list of immoral sins that we read. Covetousness was, was kind of the odd one out. It was there for a purpose because it's just wholly selfish, but, but it, it was kind of riding along with those. Well, lying is kind of doing the same thing here because we don't have to be really angry to lie. Sometimes we can be extremely fearful and lie, right? But what lying has most in common with covetousness is that self-centered nature of why we wouldn't tell the truth. And so I think that's why it's a parallel here. So when we lie, we're either advancing ourselves or we're avoiding something that we feel will be negative for us, right? All of us can remember as kids. Did you do that? No. Do you know who did it? <laughs> I'm clueless. You know what? We should investigate, right? Because 
this is wrong. <laughs> As usual, though, let's be honest, we just kind of get a little more sophisticated at it. Little kids, and this is good, the real little ones aren't in here, I don't see it. Well, it's maybe something. Just plug their ears. They don't know how to lie yet. Not well. Okay? Right? We're just better fibbers. And that should not be the case. <laughs> so like the different aspects of anger, people use lies to manipulate other people and situations to their advantage as well. Also, when we lie, we have no regard for the person that we are lying to. Did you ever think about that? I'm telling you a non-truth because I don't really care about you. That's really what we're saying. We aren't thinking deep in our heart, I need to protect my boss from the awful truth of why I really called off work. Right? That's not why we lie. Or it's in my teacher's best interest that I make up a lie about why I don't have the assignment finished. We also show total disrespect when we lie to people. They believe us and then go with the false information that we have given to them. And that lie could harm others in a significant way. Right? We just basically said, here, here's something false that I'm going to give to you for whatever reason. doesn't matter. And you now have a ticking time bomb. Go with that. Right? Not only, not only do we have a problem with everything that happens as a result of that. But this poor person, they've been lied to. They've been deceived. They don't know that they've got now this ticking time bomb with them. Maybe it's something like this. Uh, you know, uh, Johnny over there in, you know, whatever department, you know, he's like this or he doesn't do that. Or, you know, so we, we drop their character down, right? Well, now this person has that information, and now they're going through the shop, and maybe they interact with Johnny, and they're like, well, yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're sitting down to break with somebody else, and they're ripping on Johnny just because something they heard from you that wasn't even true. And let's just say it was true. Again, that goes back. It's not right. right. Now, we're talking about lying now, but it, that's that other category. So let's again look at Proverbs really quick here. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it. And a flattering mouth, which is just another form of a lie, works ruin. Wow. Again, does God's word pull any punches here? No. The word hate, sometimes we put a lot of emotion in that. The word hate literally means to consider nothing. I'm talking to you. I am giving you a non-truth, right? I'm lying bold face to you because I just don't think anything of you. That's really what it's saying here. It doesn't have to be filled with emotion. We just don't have any consideration for the person. So we lie to them. Now we're going to be concluding now, but don't get too excited because it's a little bit longer conclusion today. And some of you guys are like, what? I just woke up. We're concluding? Huh? <laughs> We're going to start off with Proverbs of this section, though. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4. 
A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Folks, this idea of perverseness, it's, it's any variation of speech that is wrong. So this kind of covers it all. So as we're concluding here, as we're bringing some thoughts together, it's, it's any kind of, of speech that is off, that is wrong, that isn't, are words that aren't applied correctly, they're perverse, right? And they hurt people. They hurt people. So what I want to do today is something a little bit different. I want to look at a narrative in Scripture. And I really think that you're going to like it. But here's the thing. It's one of those stories that's kind of embedded in a much bigger story. And that's what's kind of cool about it. And it's, it's about a guy named Mephibosheth. Okay? I was going to talk to Tim and Samantha because I, I think they should name their next born Mephibosheth. <laughs> Is it top 10? Top 10? Anyway, not a chance. He's not going to lie to me right now, is he? Anyway, okay, so, so we're going to look at 2 Samuel 4, 4 first. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So what's the setting? This is a setting of when Saul's sins finally caught up with him. And oh, by the way, Saul's sins overtook his righteous son. Right? We don't want to lose that fact. So Saul and Jonathan, the, the king and the heir, died in battle. And here is this nurse to one of Jonathan's sons, tries to whisk him away to get him to, get him to a safe place. And somehow what happened was he was probably fell and was injured and lost the use of his legs. Okay, so that's Mephibosheth's story. So turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And what I want us to see here is there are two very strong aspects to the right kind of communication and the wrong kind of communication and even how we can respond to it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entire narrative through several passages, and then we're going to discuss it. Because it's a narrative. You can get the story, right? You can get the story. Second Samuel 9, verses 1 through 13. In your pew Bible, we're going to start there in page 274. We'll start in verse 1, 2 Samuel 9. Now David said, is there still anyone? So obviously David has established his kingdom now. Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Now, let me stop her real quick. Jonathan and David were tight. They were best of friends. Just enough said, okay? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At, at your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and, and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Am Amiel, and from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephib Mephibosheth? 
And he said, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I am sure I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Now, by the way, why did he come in and bow down the way he did? He was afraid of retribution. Okay, he was afraid that David was still cleaning house from the previous administration. Right. So he goes on. Uh, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan's sake, verse 7, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread of my table continually. Wow. Not what Jonathan was expecting. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon him as a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants will work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As from Mephibosheth, the king said, He shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. Now turn with me uh, quickly here to uh, chapter 16. Some time has gone by, right? And now we are uh, in chapter 16. We are now in the middle of the uh, rebellion of Absalom, Absalom, King's, uh, King David's son. Okay? And I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 4. Just something tucked away in here. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba. So he's, he's fleeing the city. He's fleeing Jerusalem. There was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys. And on them, 200 loaves of bread... 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. Where did Ziba get all this stuff? Mephibosheth's land, right? Okay. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean by all these? And so Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Whoa. Wow. So according to Ziba, Mephibosheth saw an opportunity to get back his father's legacy. So, yeah, Saul died, Jonathan never reigned, but now we can have the house of Saul come back. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. All right? Jump with me now to chapter 19. Chapter 19. The, the um, rebellion is over, and David is now getting back to uh, restoring his kingdom and, and getting things back in place. And we're going to jump ahead toward the end of that 
to verse 24. Now Bephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Okay, now just so we understand, this could have been a life and death answer. Right? And he, Mephibosheth, answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of these matters? And David had bigger fish to fry, right? He was moving on. What are you talking about this stuff for, right? I have said, you and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather, let him take it all. Inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. So first we see the terrible thing that Ziba did in chapter 16, which Absalom, uh, when Absalom tried to take the kingdom from his father. Ziba told King David that Mephibosheth had aligned himself with Absalom and that he was actually looking to, again, get his own uh, house back. It's a perfect illustration of the kind of speech that we're talking about today. Now, I don't think that we're reading too much into the text when we consider this out of chapter 9. When Ziba was called before the king, before King David, I think that he thought the king intended to honor him. Right? At your service. When David gave Mephibosheth Saul's household in honor, to honor his friend Jonathan, that did not sit well with Ziba. Years went by. But when Ziba saw his chance, he was ready. He was there. He lied to King David. He slandered his master and he acted upon his covetousness with malice toward Mephibosheth. As is often the case, Ziba accused his master of doing to David the exact same thing that he was doing to Mephibosheth. You ever notice that? You hear someone shouting and bellyaching about something, many times you look and they're bellyaching about what they're actually doing. In chapter 19, we hear the claim of Mephibosheth that he desired to flee, but was deceived by Ziba. Now, God, I believe, made sure his word testified on behalf of Mephibosheth with both his, uh, to be on his side with what happened. So it wasn't just his words, but it was also the physical signs of his distress and loyalty during Absalom's treason. Did you notice that? He didn't take care of himself. He didn't even take a bath. I don't know how long it took, but it wasn't just a couple of days. Now, I chose the story of Ziba and Mephibosheth for a very specific reason. It wasn't just, but it includes 
what Ziba did, but it's also Mephibosheth's reaction. Mephibosheth's reaction was a lesson on focus. He was terribly wronged in a cold, calculating way, and the person who wronged him actually got away with it. He got half his kingdom, or half of his legacy. Again, we don't know why God allowed this, but how was David supposed to untangle what really happened? Think about that. He wasn't there. It was a terrible time. But we can't lose sight of a very important lesson in the middle of all this drama. Let's parallel Mephibosheth and his reaction to his king with how we should respond to our king. Mephibosheth said that he was as good as dead without the grace and mercy of King David. He was loyal to the king. Even though his servant had nearly taken everything he had, including defaming his character and taking away his good name, Mephibosheth was content with simply being at the king's table of being with the king. Mephibosheth could have pressed his case, right? He could have said, I am a victim here. And by the way, he would have been right. He could have been outraged and lashed out with a rashful vengeance. He could have actually sought death for Ziba, his servant. He also could have harbored malice in his heart and begun a slow burn campaign to get even with Ziba at another time. But he didn't do any of those things because his focus was on his king. His focus was on his king and that relationship, as you can see from the text, was actually all that mattered to him. Many of us in this room have been the legitimate victim of wrath, malice, slander, hurtful speech, and lies. For some of us, it has affected our lives in a very significant way. But there's one huge difference between David and our God. Our Heavenly Father doesn't miss a thing. There is no confusion with God. There is no situation, no matter how complicated, no matter how twisted, that he doesn't know it from the beginning to the end. And there will be a final justice, and it is not up to us. Right? That's where our focus and our faith comes in. Man, if we could just apply the same attitude that Mephibosheth had and the focus that he had on his king. If we could apply that to us and our king. How much hurt and anger would we spare ourselves if we could overlook things and see the bigger picture, see eternity in mind, see the fact that we are seated at Christ's table? How about the emotional churning and the bitterness and the lack of peace? Positively speaking, what freedom and peace he must have had by finding contentment with just sitting there with King David. And how should that translate for us, right? So Mephibosheth had the right perspective. And let's apply that to Christ our King. I came from nothing. And I was 
as good as dead. Instead, God was gracious and merciful to me. The King of Kings has allowed me to be one of his children. No matter what earthly things I may lose or how people may treat me, I will remember your character. That's the right response. I will not blame you for what others do. Nor will I allow myself to be burdened by the anger and slander others may hurl at me. Instead, I will exalt and celebrate you, my Savior. I don't need anything else but to be in your presence and enjoy my fellowship with you. Folks, how would our lives be different if that was our focus? If that was our response to the horrible things that some people can commit to us, I'm not saying that you don't have any type of redress. I'm not saying that you can't try to right a wrong. I'm simply saying, man, if we have the bigger picture in mind, if our focus is on Christ and eternal things and not these earthly things, how much more at peace would we be? And how less would we be inclined to nail that other person because of what they did? And with that, I want us to close by taking a look at Revelation 19. So you're going to turn way back. We actually quoted from Genesis today, and now we're going to look at Revelation. Wow, right? We've been around here. So Revelation chapter 19. I just want to remind us of a scene that is actually future for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We're going to start in verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called, let me say this, seated, right, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Folks, that's our focus. If we're in Christ, we're going to sit down and we're going to pull up a chair and we are going to dine with our Savior, the great omnipotent God. What does it matter what someone does to us on this earth? Don't let it grind you to a powder. It's not worth it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. That's what we've been told. But the flip side of that is we've got to get rid of that kind of speech too. We can't cause that in somebody else. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have this story of a, a young guy who, who lost the use of his legs. He was this insignificant person that they had to search for and he was living with somebody else. (laughs) 
He was so grateful for the graciousness of an earthly king. So grateful that he didn't get caught up in all of the politics and the property and the fairness and everything else. He never lost the appreciation of the gracious kindness that the king had shown him. Heavenly Father, may we have that kind of focus on our king, on your son, where you made us your friends. You you have allowed us a seat at the table, and we were also dead dogs. Lord, again, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, does not have a place at the table because they've not trusted Christ and what he has done for us, I pray that you'll work in their life even today. That even through that scene, they will see the amazing hope that we have, your word, that this will take place. And Father, I pray that you'll deal with us on a moment-by-moment basis, that we will wrestle down that we will gain victory over our tongues. And Lord, I, I don't always like that word victory because we think of conquering something. Lord, it's, a, it's obedience. May we be obedient with our speech. And Lord, may it drive us deeper into changing our hearts, putting away the things that are earthy and selfish and wrong. You have a change of clothes for us that we'll be looking at in the near future. But Father, I pray that we'll first put these things off and keep putting them off as they rear their ugly heads. In Christ's name, amen.